welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Some of the strongest stories we tell are stories of redemption, where relationship is broken and then through pain, love, and a change of heart are restored and repaired. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues this series, Imago Dei, with this sermon entitled Image Restored, which covers Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into week three of this series of Mago Day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness in our lives and that both here in person and through modern technology, we are able to be uh, together in worship. Father, remind us, as you often have during this pandemic, that the church is not a building. The church is, is your people. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that, that this day we would be a people who worship you well who love you well. We give this time to you, Father, asking that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. We want to offer our hearts and our minds up to you, Father, to give them to you and say, would you do what only you can in softening our hearts and engaging our minds? Uh, Lord, keep us awake if we're tired. Make us engaged with you, hearing from you, listening to your word and seeing the beauty of Jesus through your word. So God, we ask that. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come. Do your work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's probably about a year ago, maybe a little longer, that uh, my family and I, Rachel and the kids, we got into this show on Netflix called Nailed It. Based upon the lack of response, I might be the only family that has watched Nailed It. Um, Nailed It is a cake show, literally, about baking cake, to which many of you are going, yeah, that's why I haven't watched this show. Um, It's actually pretty entertaining and fascinating. The premise of the show is this. Uh, At the beginning of each show, they have three contestants that go into a a studio, TV studio, and, and there's three kind of different kitchens that are in this studio all next to each other, and those contestants have an hour to bake a cake. But here's the catch. The catch is that at the beginning of the show, they wheel out the cake of what they're supposed to be making. And the cake that they always wheel out is um, immaculately designed. It is something to behold, so beautiful to behold, that when you look at it, you even kind of go, is that even a cake? I'm not sure that that's something that you can eat. But then when you do eat it, when you do take of it, it tastes Amazing. So it's not just something that looks amazing. It's something that in its essence is so incredibly good. So they have an hour to bake a cake that looks like this image of a cake in front of them, this picture of a cake. So this is what you end up with. (laughs) They nailed it. As you can see, Um, that on the right would be much better than what I would make. Here's another one. You know, I'm giving them lots of credit here. It's it's yellow and and black, supposed to be brown, but close enough. And and the heart is red. Um, 
So yeah, that's probably better than I would have done. But again, nothing like what it's supposed to be. And then here's the, the best for last. Um, this poor person just melted that little cake man and on top of a cupcake. And uh, it's just a heap of mess. And so, you know, as a pastor, I'm always looking for spiritual analogies. And one time when we were watching this show, it, it began to kind of hit me in a way that probably only makes sense in my mind. But it's like, well, this is kind of similar to the image of God thing that we've been talking about in that uh, there is an image before us of what we are supposed to be. There's an image before us. There's a picture before us. And we see it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 of this is what God designed man and woman to be as we image him. And then as we talked about last week, uh, because of sin, everything fell apart. And we still image God, but only structurally and only in part. It's very marred and broken. And, and then functionally, from the spiritual sense and knowledge of God and holiness and righteousness, we completely lost everything to where we don't image him at all in those areas. In fact, we're spiritually dead. And so as a result of sin in our lives, here's what begins to happen. We've lost sight of the true image that we are to be namely God, and we have now created all these other images, all these other cakes, if you will, that get wheeled out in front of us and we look at it and we go, yes, that's what I'm supposed to be. That's it. That's the image that I long to be. And so we begin creating for ourselves in all different facets of humanity and society, all these images of what it means to be human. This is what I'm supposed to be. And so we can define it in all kinds of ways. We can begin to say things like maybe it's people that we have seen on movies and TV and social media, whatnot. And so a celebrity of some sort that we just look at and say, that's what I long for my life as a human to be. That's a human right there. So maybe it's a movie star. Maybe it's a musician and you're a musician and you say, if I could only be like that person, then I would be fully human in the way that I was designed to be. Or maybe it's uh, in the corporate world and you see the accomplishments and the success of someone around you, or maybe someone you don't even know, but that is the president of this company or whatever it may be. And you say that, that is what I'm supposed to be. And isn't it interesting that no matter what our spiritual background is, in every one of these images that we create, that we say, this is what it means to be human, all of them have carryover and sameness, similarities, and they almost always carry with them things like uh, a human should be decent, a human should be virtuous, a, man of, a woman of character and integrity, kindness, compassion, love, selflessness. All these things seem to be consistent for the most part, when we try to define what a human is to be. And I would say to you, well, the reason all those things can, are consistently there in the naming of what a, a human should be is because that's the image of God within us. We know those things deep down because we're image bearers of Christ, as broken as we are, we know deep down that there in those virtues is something significant that we all long for that we all want. But the problem lies in that we have the wrong image. We've lost the image of God as our, as our place that we're looking. We've lost him. And so now we have the image of this person and this person and this person. And it's all idealized 
It's never reality. And so I don't want you to miss this. So what we end up doing with our lives is we end up trying to take the ingredients of our lives and shape them into the beauty of something else that we perceive to be the image that we long for. And we always fail. It's never enough. We always miss the mark. And we always end up feeling at some level like the melted man on the cupcake. I just can't get there. And all of it produces within us a longing, a deep soul longing for something better. But what I want to tell you this morning is that what you and I long for is not for something better. It's for someone better. Because there is one who came, who was the perfect image. There is one who came who is reality. He's not only the perfect image of what humans are to be, but he's also the reality of that being. And he offers the same, very same opportunity, very same um, power to be what he is. We're in church. You know the answer to that. This someone is Jesus. But it's true. He's the one. I want to show you in Scripture how he is the one who restores us and makes us into what we long to be. It's important for us to go back to kind of our staple slide, if you will, of of the five pillar gospel and orient to where we are in this eight week series. So in the first week, we talked about the importance of starting our gospel narrative, our gospel presentation, if you will, with not with Genesis three, but with Genesis one to start with this this all encompassing, beautiful doctrine of the image of God that man and woman are made into God's image and what that means and the significance of that even before sin comes into the world. Then last week, we did look at Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, that as sin comes into the world, we lose the image of God, not entirely, but certainly functionally. This week, we're going to be zoomed in on redemption that Jesus is doing a redeeming work within us. And then I'll be pointing us even uh, this week towards restoration. And then the rest of our series, uh, the remaining five weeks of this series, Imago Day, will be focused primarily on that fourth pillar, restoration. And we'll talk just a little bit at the end about consummation, but wish we could talk more about it in this series. But we're seeing that I'm even sensing, uh, and certainly probably will even more so as we get to the end of the series, that Uh, that we'll need to do a series probably in and of itself on that fifth pillar, consummation. What does it mean when Jesus comes back and makes all things new? What should we expect? What do we have to look forward to? What is that going to be? What is it not going to be? Where are our misconceptions of the new heavens and the new earth and the final work of Jesus as he is not now only just restoring, but consummating that restorating work? So it's important to understand that today we're talking about redemption, moving towards restoration. And here's, it's also important to go back to our, um, to our main passage for this, for this series, which is Genesis 1, 
26 through 28. Let me read it to you again. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, speaking to the Trinity. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we consider these three verses, as we continue to think about what is God saying here, here's four truths that need to be embraced and understood before we fully begin to understand the redeeming and restoring work of Jesus. And that is to think about how did God originally design us to be according to these three verses and according to the totality of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So let me give you four things real quick in God's original design that mankind is to be or was to be in the original creation. First, we were to be first and foremost, this is the most important relationship. It's what matters most. It's the right relationship with God. That was what we were originally created to be in. And so man and woman fellowshiped with God, communed with God, walked with God, listened to God, heard God's voice. Uh, we can only begin to uh, imagine in one day if you're a follower of Christ, believer in him, you will know this, this reality, but what it must have been like for Adam and Eve in this reality to where in the Garden of Eden, there was no, there was nothing that was hindering them in their relationship with God. Everything was perfect between man and between God. God also, well, let me just read you a couple of quotes before I move to the second one. Augustine, back in the third century, said this, you, made, uh, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. And then the next one from John Calvin, he says this, all men are born to live to the end that they may know God. Why do you exist? You ever wondered that question? Why am I here? The Bible teaches us is that you're here for God. You're created by him and for him. He is the reason for your existence, but not just the reason. He is the fulfillment of your existence. We were made for him to be in fellowship with him, to be in right relationship with him. Also, before sin came into the world, we had this experience with God where we were in right relationship with each other. I pointed it out each week that it's significant that as, as God is recalling that he made humans, he makes it very clear that as he says, I'm, I'm creating man in my own image, he says, and I made them male and female. And as you see the account in Genesis 2, you begin to hear language like this. It's not good for man to be alone. And so God creates woman for man. And certainly that's a picture of what marriage is to be as it reflects the unity with one another that we have with God as his people. But it's also tipping the hat towards what would be then fleshed out in the rest of scripture, which is this, that we're not just made uh, for male and female relationships. We're made for community across all kinds of lines, whether that be in the context of marriage or whether you're not married, even single, you're not made to do life alone. God designed us to be in right relationship with one another. He also designed us to be in right relationship with ourselves. 
You say, well, that sounds kind of weird. What does that mean? Well, it's just getting at where do we seek to find our identity? Where's our worth? Where's our value? Are we a people that know first and foremost that we were created by a loving God in his image with dignity and with value and with worth? Or are we searching in all a myriad of other places within culture and society and life to find meaning and purpose to speak into me something that only he can? And then lastly, and this is one that might seem weird to you as well, that we're to be in right relationship with creation. If you, if you notice in the text, he says it twice. He, he talks about this a lot in these three verses. He talks a lot about these words dominion and subdue the earth. And he gives man and woman, he gives us responsibility over creation. And we'll talk about this more in the series. We'll flesh this out. So uh, I may leave you a little bit with some questions today on this front, but I just want you to know, this is something that is to be a part of the human experience, that we wouldn't use and abuse creation for our glory, but we would actually enhance and create creation in such a way and, and, and uh, work creation in such a way to where we're making it more beautiful to the glory of God. So he says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. And he said it previously in verse 26 again, and he's going to say it later on again. So it must be weighty. It must be significant what God wants us to do with our hands, with our intellect, with every part of who we are and the gifts that he's given us to do something with this space that he's given us. The land, the relationships, the animals, the sky, the birds, the fish, everything, we are to cultivate it to bring about God's splendor. In chapter two of Genesis, God even told Adam, this was before sin came into the world. Sometimes people have taught wrongfully so, and maybe you've heard this, that, that work was a curse of sin. It was a result of sin. No work was pre-fall, was pre-sin. Because in Genesis 2, before sin has ever come into the world, God tells Adam to work and to keep the garden. That's what he's doing in Genesis 1.28. He's cultivating. He's making something that's wild and untamed, beautiful and tamed. And it's all to be as image bearers of God to the glory of God. Sadly, in the 20th century, this, this piece here of that we would have right relationship with creation, in the church, it got kind of convoluted, Right? Rightfully so, the church in, uh, in the mid-20th century began to really say, hey, our only role as the church is to save souls, which is not wrong by any means. Of, of course, the first relationship that, I that we talk about that we're to be right with is God. And so what, what do we most need? We need deliverance from our sins. We need rescuing. We need forgiveness. We need renewal. We need our hearts to be made new. We need to be redeemed. Our souls absolutely need saving. But the mission of the church does not end there. The mission of the church has to be more holistic to where as people, men and women are being saved by God, we are actually being engaged in the mission of God to proclaim that same gospel to save souls, but to also usher in the kingdom of God in such a way to where right relationships with him have been established, right relationships with others have been established, right relationship with ourself has been established, is being established and also with creation. What the church did in the 20th century, the evangelical church, it says, we'll leave that agenda to the liberal church and the liberal left. 
because we only care about souls. But what we see in scripture is that God cares about it all. First and foremost, the souls of man and woman, but then how do we live to bring God's redeeming work to bear in everywhere we go, every human we talk to, everything that we touch? Is that not what he's up to? I'll go ahead and give you a tip of the hat towards consummation. That's what he's gonna do. That's what he's in the process of doing. The consuming work of God when he comes again, when Jesus returns, is to make all things new. It's not to burn up the earth and do away with it and let man just float around in, in souls and space and say, well, I saved a bunch of souls. No, it's to put man with him in physical reality on this earth. And we have been made new in resurrected bodies and the whole earth has been made new in a physical reality in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, all that to say, that's what we were designed to be. But as we talked about last week, all that, all that was tarnished. There's not one aspect of our existence that hasn't been marred by our fall into sin. And so as a result, we're not in right relationship with God. We're not in right relationship with each other. We desperately need reconciliation with God and with each other. Where the world has sought to divide, God seeks to bring a redeeming and reconciling work. We're not in right relationship with ourselves and we're not in right relationship with creation. Now, if I stopped right there and I said, that's our, that's our teaching for today, let's pray. You would be very depressed and you would say, that was the most depressing sermon I've ever heard in my life. And there would be no good news if that were the end of the story. But there is incredible news in Jesus. It's important to understand in Scripture, and I'm not going to read all of this, but I am going to give you homework. It's important to understand in Scripture who we belong to, who's our head, if you will. Because scripture teaches us that in all of humanity, throughout all of the history of mankind, there are two people that are our heads. And we're either in one or we're in the other. We're either naturally under one, one, of, one uh, man's headship or we're under the other man's headship. Something that we call as theologians corporate identity. That we're either under the identity of the first Adam, or we're under the identity of the second Adam. Scripture actually refers to it in that way, that there is the, the first Adam, and then there's the last Adam, or the second Adam, and that the first Adam was a, a, a type of the second Adam. But Jesus, the second Adam, would be everything that the first Adam wasn't. So here's your homework. I want you to read this week, uh, ideally more than once, Romans chapter 5. Because Romans chapter five is gonna lay out for you from the apostle Paul, the teaching on the two Adams. The first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. But I do wanna to read to you uh, a part of second Corinthians, I'm sorry, of first Corinthians out of chapter 15. Listen to this as, as I start us in verse 20 of first Corinthians 15. It says, but in fact, 
There we go. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that's significant. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So the first man is Adam, the second man, Jesus. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then later on in that very same chapter, it says this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are, who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have, don't miss this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the teaching of scripture is this. We're born into Adam. We are born as Adam is our head. He is our identity. He is, we're not sinful because because we do sinful things. We're sinful because that's who we are. That's what we were born into with that nature. So let me say it this way. The first Adam, this is who we are. We are born in his likeness. We inherit his nature and we receive his death, both the physical death that he ushered into the world because of sin, but then also the spiritual death, most significantly, that comes with sin. So what scripture teaches us is that there's a, there's a true and better Adam who came to do everything that the first Adam failed miserably to do. And so in the second Adam, in Christ, well, skip ahead, sorry. There we go. In the second Adam, we are reborn in his likeness. We inherit his nature. We receive his life. Everything is changed. And now we have a new headship. We have a new uh, identity. We have a new nature to where uh, originally we're born with the, what I would call the Adamic residue, the residue of Adam. Now we are reborn through faith in Jesus Christ to be made into his image, not into the image of Adam. This is what the scripture talks about. If you go back to Genesis 5, it actually talks about in Genesis 5 that we are born into the likeness of Adam. But then 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have a new nature. We have new life. We have new hope. Not hope that we think it might happen, but hope that is a sure hope that it will happen and that Jesus is doing a redeeming work, redeeming work in us, bringing us back to the Father, restoring that right relationship and then doing a restoring work. Now, now listen, the redeeming work that he's doing is instantaneous. Redemption is immediate. It's called justification in the scriptures. That we are a people who, when we believe upon Christ, are immediately redeemed into right relationship with God. But the restoring work of God in us to slowly make us more into the image of his son, it's a lifelong process once we've been redeemed. 
It's what the Bible calls sanctification, that we are being made more and more like Jesus. So if you go back to those four right relationships, what was so marred in the fall, we now have the ability through Christ in us who's redeemed us from our sin and now is restoring us into newness of life to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with each other, to be in right relationship with ourselves, to be in right relationship with creation. I don't want you to miss what scripture is teaching us about Adam and about Jesus. Romans 5, it tells us that Adam was a type, a type of the one, the second Adam who was going to come. You think about it and you think about what Jesus did in his ministry and his time on earth and you start seeing connection. You start seeing dots connect about, oh, he's the true and better Adam. He's, he's rectifying what Adam destroyed. And so you think about Adam was tempted in paradise and in the midst of paradise, with all that, that God had given him, it still wasn't enough, and he succumbed to sin. But then Jesus shows up, and right after his baptism, he's ushered not into paradise, but into wilderness, where he's tempted much more se severely and significantly than Adam. But he doesn't succumb to sin. He overcomes sin, not in paradise, but in wilderness. You see Adam who's in the midst of paradise and he has all this life teeming around him and he, and he basically says, this life is not enough. I need more life and I, I need to seek it in the nourishment of a forbidden fruit. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I am the true life, the way, the truth, and the life. And I don't need nourishment in anything other than the very word of God. You see Adam where because of his sin, he ushers himself and all of humanity out of paradise and out of the presence of God. And then you see Jesus show up on the scene. And what does he do? He offers his perfection, his life upon the cross in such a way to where now all humanity is not ushered out of paradise, but ushered into paradise. And he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise because the thief had believed upon Jesus. And now we're not outside the presence of God. We're in the presence of God. You see Adam and Adam says, because I want to take this fruit, what I'm ultimately saying to you, God, is not, not your will, but my will be done. And then you see Jesus wrestling with God in the garden. And he says to God, not my will, oh God, but your will be done. And then you see Adam sin in the garden. And upon sinning, when, when God comes and he says, what is this that you have done, Adam? Adam says, he tries to blame the woman and then even God. And he said, God, it's your fault that I have sinned. And then Jesus shows up onto the scene. And Jesus says that even though I have not sinned, put the blame on me. In every way, he is the true and the better Adam. And he's doing redeeming and a restoring work to take us who are dead in Adam and make us alive in Christ. To make us new. To make us whole in all of our brokenness. And to begin to image again what we were originally created to image. God himself. Christ himself. 
That's the good news of the gospel. Of course, it involves that we are redeemed from our sin. Yes. But it begins there. But the restoring work of us as humans, what does it mean to be human? It means that I'm being made more into the image of God, and that only happens through Jesus. And so we're back to the cake. We have all these cakes that we put in front of us, and we think that's the ideal human experience. But there's only one perfect cake, if you will, and it's Jesus, and he's presented before us. How do we respond to him? What's our, what's our response to Jesus? Certainly you can reject that any of this is true. And you can say, this is just all crazy talk. But if you begin to feel your heart warmed, that this Jesus, that he's real, that he really is the true image of God, and he's the only one that can rectify the mess that I am. He's the only one who can redeem me and restore me. You might be tempted to do what the, the people on the show do, which is they look at the cake that's the image that they're trying to make, and then they take, to the best of their ability, all the ingredients and try to shape it and make it and look like that. In other words, that cake is just a model to try and be like. That's not what Jesus is inviting you into. Jesus is not just saying, I'm the perfect image of God, be like me. This is what Jesus is saying, and it's profound. Don't miss it. He's not saying, I'm the image of God, be like me. He's saying, I am the perfect image of God, the Son of God in the flesh, be united to me. Don't see me just as a model, receive me as your master. The only good and gracious and kind and benevolent and loving master who will actually do in you and through you what you so desperately long for. This Jesus, he's the only redeemer. Would you come to him? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your, your word that teaches us. It speaks to the very heart of who we are. It makes us aware of who we are apart from you and amazed at who we are in you. Jesus, we need you. We long for you. And we pray that you'd forgive us of all the ways in which we seek to, to find our worth and our being in something apart from you. And Lord, I pray for those who may be here in this room or watching online who have never, who've never trusted you by faith never surrendered by the volition of their own will to say, I need you, O oh Jesus. I place my faith in you and I ask you to come and do what only you can in making me more like you. 
Lord, I pray that this morning would be the morning that you draw them unto yourself. Lord, we sit and we rest in your presence and we declare that you are good. And we thank you that in you, we are new. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.